ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, thanks for joining Western Contours as we bring you Elk Holland Academy's Feature Friday. This week, Michael talks about elk rut behaviors and the variables that come with it and ethics versus notching your tag. Enjoy the episode. Hello, everybody. My name is Michael Batiste, and this is Wapiti Wednesday Q&A. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. We're glad you're here. The way Q&A works is we basically start with a subject, and tonight we're going to kind of talk about some of the questions you guys put in today. Um, annual elk behavior as far as when it comes to the rut, ethics about notching tags, and we have a few other questions. Now, it doesn't matter which channel you're joining us from, whether you're on Instagram, YouTube, or Facebook. Book, you always have the ability to put your questions in in the comments section below, and we will do our best to answer those while we're going. Also, if this is your first time or simply you're enjoying the content we create, make sure that you click that like, subscribe, or follow button. And also be sure to turn on notifications. So, all right, let's kind of jump into it. So, uh, Pack Mount Apparel, how you doing? Uh, Charles Janovic, glad to be here. Scott Harris, howdy. So, okay, a couple of you guys have talked about or made mentions about the rack. So, um, this one right up over here, this is a, a five by five. The reason he's kind of unique is all this stuff right here is a bunch of dried velvet. This was a bull that I took in Montana. Uh, on an archery hunt a few years ago. And then this one right here is just a great big giant five with unreal thirds from here in Idaho. And there actually is another one over in the corner um, that is an Idaho bull as well that has a real reddish tint, um, you know, 
to them. Each each one unique story, unique situation. Every time I look at them, I just relive those hunts. So, uh, but this guy right here, this was kind of cool because I was in an old burn area and had multiple bulls going, and he was coming in with three other satellite bulls that were just in a single file, and I was actually working the big herd bull, and I was going to let them go right on by chase them off and focus on the herd bull. But as soon as this dude got close and I saw that dried velvet, it, 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 yeah, you guys know me, funky horns, funky stuff. And, and I mean, how often do you get to shoot a bull with archery equipment in October that still has a bunch of dried velvet on his antlers? I just thought that was really, really cool and unique. So, all right. So uh, let's see, Glenn Drexler, it wasn't the hunt. I thought it would be for my hunt. Talked to a local the last night of the hunt. And he is 23-33 on archery bulls. And he said this year was a tough year. So, um, yeah, and, and, and it, it was. So in some areas. So, I mean, we had a phenomenal year where we were with tremendous rut activity. And so let's kind of jump into that. Brad Lowry, like the new background. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. In fact, Brad, we are going to jump into your question to start the night. So, um and I think this might help a lot of you with the season. So uh, Brad basically wrote, I am curious about your thoughts on elk areas from year to year. I have four different honey holes in different types of terrain, but all roughly the same elevation. Every year I can remember these spots have all had a good amount of elk of all sizes. This year was different. Only one of the four had any elk in them and only raghorns. None of these spots have much pressure It is a, as it is a very long hike in. We had deep snow a lot later this year, July, than most, and that's the only variable I can think of. Someone once told me that elk like to rut in the same areas where cows dropped calves the spring prior, but that just doesn't make sense to me. Bulls and cows were in all these areas in August, too. So, okay. Um... So remember, guys, we talked about this this summer. So, you know, we did a Wapiti Wednesday Q&A a while ago about hunting elk in normal years versus hunting elk in wet years. And that's what we had this year. We had a wet year. There was the late snows in February. The snow stayed late. I mean, look at look at your area. How long did that green grass stay up in the mountain. So when you have wet years like you do this year, that we had this year, that feed is spread out, which means the elk is spread out. And if the elk are spread out, you don't have that bull to cow ratio during the rut and you don't have that competition. So Brad, to answer your question, yes, elk will go back to the same area year after year after year to rut. Now that statement about that elk like to rut in the same areas where cow dropped the calves is partially true because those cows are going to stay down where they drop their calves. And so basically when those bulls start looking for cows, they're going to go down to where those cows and calves are, round up, break them out, get their herds, and then they're going to take their herds up into their rutting area. A bull is going to go back to the same rutting area year after year after year. But when you have a wet year like you did this year, 
and you have more feed that's spread out, those elk are going to be spread out more. So, so some of you saying it was a tough year and Brad were, you know, only one out of the four produced elk, but years past, all four have. You got to remember on a wet year like this year, things are going to be different. So, uh, and that's why, you know, I had kind of talked about with it being wet, with that feed being spread out you're going to have the ability or you're going to have to kind of go search more because they're going to be spread out more. But the thing is, is remember, I told you guys, you may find some little pockets or some little honey holes that during a normal year or a dry year, that little pocket may hold elk that nobody else is hitting because you stumbled across that. So, so Brad, yeah, they will go back in the same area year after year after year. And for some of you guys that were saying you just didn't have much bugling action, that's part of it too. Because you think about it, if you're a bull that has cows and there's really not too many other bulls around, are you really going to sit there and be piping off or this or that? You will when a cow comes into estrus. Um, but since you're not having to compete, you can enjoy the luxury life of just hanging out with your cows and waiting for them to come into cycle and then taking care of each one of those cows in estrus. So, all right. So Brad, hopefully that answered your questions. Holy cow. Instagram, the questions are just cranking in. Let me check this one over here. Um, okay. So sorry, I got to scan back up real quick here. You guys were just pumping questions in here. Okay, to, 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 to Northeast Washington was tough this year. Okay, uh, Fishy Freak 78, quick question. I'm going to try and go for my first elk next year. What caliber rifle and what bow would you recommend for a first timer? So as far as, you know, caliber, um, I mean, depending on how old you are, your size, I, I mean, you know, a 7mm 08 can get it done. 264 is a good caliber. You really have a lot of good calibers out there. I, I'm still kind of, you know, old school 308, 30-06, um, but you have 300 Remington Ultra, 300 Win Mags. I, I mean, just there are a plethora of choices. Honestly, the better way or better way to answer that caliber rifle is, you know, just sit down at your computer, do a Google search and, you know, what's a great caliber for elk and just start reading the different forums. Gather your own information, but also once you start narrowing down calibers, then do a search for ballistics and muzzle velocity and impact and start gathering that information, you know, for yourself. So um, I, ha I, I haven't taken too many elk with a rifle, um, but all I've ever used is a 308. So, all right. Um, 270 or 30-06 is a good caliber. So early season was a, was a bust, hardly got into anything. Well, early season, that's where it was tricky. And I told you guys, it seemed like the people that were covering ground trying to locate had a hard time locating elk, but those people that really took their time and sat down and worked an area, they were getting elk coming to them. They were getting elk coming in silent and they were getting into the elk. So, um, 
And I'm not saying that those that, that cover ground didn't get into elk. Um, I just know from our experience, we didn't get really any responses back when we were covering ground locating. But as soon as we sat down and started working an area and doing blind calling sequences, we had elk coming in quiet, you know, quietly on a pretty consistent um, basis. So... And then what is a good bow for elk? Uh, to answer that second part of the question, really what you need to do is pr- pick your price point, go into your local archery shop and shoot every bow in your price point. Every bow is going to have a different draw cycle. It's going to have a different wall. It's going to have a different handle. And by you shooting every bow within your price point, the bow is going to choose you not the other way around. You're not going to go because I I can guarantee if you ask 10 different people, what's the best bow or what they recommend, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. You're going to get the brand boy favorites on the big brands. Um, But honestly, I think you just need to shoot every bow that's within your price point and let the bow shoot you. So... Uh, Big Skinny, how do you approach late season? So we're going to get into that a little bit later. Uh, We're going to kind of have some October uh, calling techniques. So off topic question, what do you think is an ideal draw weight for your bow? That depends on people. Biggest thing is, is whatever weight that you can draw comfortably in an awkward position, that's going to be the weight for you because you may be on your knees and have to hunch over and draw or this or that. Um, you don't need a bunch of weight. I mean, I've killed elk with 65 pounds. I know there's some people that kill them with 55 pounds. So look at longbows and recurves. So you don't need 80, 90, 100 pounds bows to do that if you want to that's your preference but you don't have to have it so unfortunately i work oil field in wyoming and don't have a lot of time now for scouting i had a psc nova i bought used and never got anything with it due to lack of time to spend so duncan there's nothing wrong with that psc nova so okay 308 for the win. 308 is a great caliber. So, yeah, 30 out 6, 308, 7mm. I'll, I'll tell you what, guys. I got that 7mm 08 and I set it up for my ex wife and, and her daughter. That is a fun gun to shoot. It is a blast and it has plenty of knockdown power. It's a good kind of versatile all around gun for, you know, deer, elk, bear, antelope. I shot my antelope with it last year. So, all right. Aside from a good source cover and water, what else do you look for when picking a place to hunt? So, you know, Duncan, I look for dark timber. I look for feed areas, good travel corridors. Um, We actually do have some scouting and e-scouting tutorials over at elkcallingacademy.com. And it'll show you exactly what I'm looking for and how I use these tools to find those areas. So late season, October areas, I mean, you're basically looking for feed areas and travel corridors that you basically just set up. So you can still do um, some calling. So, all right, let's see. So I think we got... 
Uh, Christopher, quick question. Is there anything you can do if you're on a herd bull and his cows catch you? It was within 44 yards from a bull and the wind was good, but his cows knew something was fishy and took off. Christopher, that's one of the toughest things about dealing with a herd bull is his cows. And in fact, a lot of times when you set up and you're working that herd bull and pulling him, he's only going to want to go so far away from his cows. And so you have to be close enough that when he gets that max distance, you have a shot. But a lot of times you have some of those cows or maybe some of the younger satellite bulls that just come cranking in. And so you have all of those eyes. So your movements really, really are critical. Um, and that's where really, you know, staying in the shadows and working on the shadows is, is key. So uh, let's see. Evening from Southern Iowa, Mike, John Jones, good to see you. Jay Colley. So last year, the horns was light. This year, horns was really dark like chocolate. And, and that, you, you know, so the different color of horns, you can see this one's really dark. Um, they lived in an old burn. This area was, you know, light because they had aspen trees. Uh, the other one, uh, red. It just the, the horn color comes from really what they're rubbing on. So, uh, but this one was really cool too, because you can see his, his rub marks on the trees and there's a bunch of pitch, especially down by the bases and the knobs. So he's got a lot of pitch in there from the tree. So, um, I'm planning on going on an archery elk hunt for the first time. Any tips on planning? GoHunt.com. So GoHunt is a great tool to really focus and narrow your search, Blake, and really um, focus in on where you want to go and, and just kind of narrow it down. It gives you, you know, uh, hunting pressure, success, public land versus private land access. It just gives you a lot of information at your fingertips. So, um if I hunted with a rifle, it would be difficult to not still try to get within bow range before shooting. I understand that statement completely. So, all right. Uh, predation and food moves elk a lot, a lot wet year. Colorado had crazy moisture. Uh, Brad Lowry, okay, I appreciate it. That makes a lot of sense. So, uh, Mason, any tips on calling elk and rifle season? Yeah, a couple of you guys have kind of asked about late season. So, um, so yeah, let's just kind of, you know, jump right into that since a couple of you have asked. So depending on when your rifle season is, I know here in Idaho, uh, tomorrow is opening day of rifle deer season. There's some rifle elk hunts. There is still running activity going on. There are still bulls bugling. You have cows in some areas that are coming into second estrus, you know, the later estrus. And in some areas that really didn't have a peak rut during our tree, some of those areas are seeing peak rut activity now. So calling can still be effective and it just goes right in line with everything that, you know, that I've said for quite a while. And I've told you guys, be aware of your surroundings. Okay. Pay attention to what's going on around you. So if you hear other elk cracking off, you know, quite a bit of calling activity, by all means, get into it. But if you're not hearing a ton of calling and you're just sitting there just you know just doing a ton of calling it's not natural it's not like anything else 
that's going on around. So pay attention. But your cow sounds, typically what I say during our rifle season is, um, you know, and I've, I've said it before, if, if you have a cow tag and you're focusing on cow tags or a cow hunt, you know, the lost calf is a great tool because you play on those maternal instincts of the cows. Um, and also the, the other nice thing with calling during a rifle season, you don't have to be that close because remember... Uh, that elk is going to step out to the point where he thinks he should be able to, you know, see that elk that's making noise. So if you're sitting there calling and you're in a clear cut or something and the elk are on the other side, you you know, chances are he's going to step out on the edge of that far timber because he can see across to where you're making the noise from. Just be ready to shoot. And yes, there have been times that have been on a rifle hunt and calling and elk have come in at archery range. It does happen. So uh, Mountain Hunter Box, is it possible to predict thermals and wind patterns based on terrain types? Uh, So if there is a bench on a northeast slope versus north or northwest slope, is there any way to know ahead of time? It has more to do with the temperature. Okay, so I I mean, morning and evenings, your thermals are blowing down because the air is cooling and colder air is heavier, which means it's going to fall down. As that air heats up, it gets lighter and starts going up the hill. Now that's what's tricky because you can be in areas and the thermals are blowing up and all of a sudden a cloud cover blocks the sun and the temp drops 10 degrees and all of a sudden you start getting this swirly wind. So is there a way to actually predict and go, this is what the wind is going to do every single time? No, there really isn't. That's what a wind checker is for. But you can know that early, especially in the archery season, early on, about nine o'clock, eight thirty, nine o'clock, depending on how hot it's going to be that day, those thermals are going to turn and start going uphill. As the season progresses and the temp- temperatures start, you know, the high temperatures start coming down, it stays coming down longer and longer because of those cooler temps. So your swirly winds can come in too if you have a front coming in and your barometric pressure is changing and you have clouds that's blocking the sun and opening the sun because you have you know warmer air, then it cools, then it warms, then it cools and the wind just can't make up its mind which way it wants to go. That's just normal air currents and movement depending on the temperature. So if you just think of cold air, heavier, falls. Hot air or warm air, lighter, rises. Think of a hot air balloon. So hot air balloon, that air, they're heating up that air. They're making that heated air lighter. And that's why basically those go out. So I uh, have to get back to work as always. Keep up the great work. Pack them out apparel. Have a great night, guys. So um so with, with, with you know the calling during during the rifle season, I, I tend to focus more on the cow sounds. But you may find yourself in an area that has a later rut. I mean, like last year, the 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 elk were just flat out full on rutting and screaming during rifle. Then yeah, your your full gambit and full approach with calling, you're good to go. Thank you.
okay. After Whitetail's now in Lewiston, uh, we didn't see an elk in the Frank. Frank Church can be a tough spot, so... Uh, saw five point bull 10 minutes ago. There you go, Danny. So you're seeing bulls now. So, uh, Wyatt going after whitetails tomorrow morning. I had a buddy kill an elk with a 45 pound recurve. Shot placement is more important than poundage. Bingo, bingo. We have a winner. Aubrey Young. I've shot a 7mm08 for years. Nice to reload as well. Jeffrey Duncan, good evening. So, Brad Lowry, cows ruined my shot opportunity for me this year, but it was also cool to have elk five feet away. So, and in fact, so next week is the next live private Q&A for you elkcallingacademy.com members. And, and we're going to talk about how to deal with those cows or how to deal with kind of those spies that come in when you're working the herd bull. So, Stephen James, how you doing, bud? Been guiding like crazy. I bet you have. It's that time of year. So, Aubrey Young, what percentage of cows would you say go into the late estrus that don't get bred early on? Bulls are actually really effective at breeding cows the first time around. Um, it's a really high percentage on what get bred that first time around. It, the second time around or the second rut, what you'll see a lot of times, so if it was a normal rut year, which was, you know, around that autumn equinox time, you know, that second estrus cycle, you know, it's going to be hitting right about now into the next week. What happens a lot of times is it's kind of the leftover younger bulls that kind of stay with the group year round because those older herd bulls, you know, like I said, they're pretty dang efficient. So then they kind of go off on their own to really focus on just feeding, being lazy, laying down and recovering from the rut because the rut takes so much out of them and they've got to put those calories back on those pounds back on you know nurse any wounds recover get ready for survival during the winter and so a lot of times those those bigger bulls will break off get into a pocket a hole and just not move. They will just stay there to store whatever energy they have and replenish what they lost to get ready for the winter. So Wesley William, do you, do you prefer fixed blade or mechanical broadheads? I've never used mechanical and I've always heard the horror stories. We can't use mechanical broadheads in Idaho. We can only use fixed blades. And honestly, I've had such good luck with fixed blades that if they ever did make mechanicals legal, I wouldn't shoot them. I would stay with the fixed blades. So that's just my personal opinion. So, uh, Scott found a well-used elk corridor, lots of fresh sign. We sat nearby and were just silent, had a couple of cows come in behind us, branches, block shot opportunities later had two cows blow out below us. Sometimes you can just sit quietly. You can, I can't. I love to call. I love the interaction. Sorry, Scott. That's that's why tree stands, blinds over water holes, that stuff. I just can't, I can't do it. Um, and and calling too. I just yeah, it's 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 tough for me. So, all right. So let's see. Um, I thought this one was kind of interesting. Bill Steiger. 
For years, I have used a cow call to stop bulls for a shot. At times when your shooting lane is narrow, the cow call stops the bull, but he may take an extra step or two, and now the vitals are blocked by obstacles. I have heard some people using the nervous bark to stop the bull in his tracks with more success, question mark. Granted, the bull may be a little on a little more alert, but wanted your thoughts and if you have ever tried. Obviously, if you're solo hunting, you would need to do this without a tube. So, yeah, it's tough sometimes, especially if you have a bull that is just focused and coming in like a freight train and you're, yeah, 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 you know, and trying to stop them. It's tough to stop them sometimes. And yeah, there's been times trying to stop them and blow right through the shooting lanes. I mean, it's one of those things. The nervous bark, have I tried it? Yeah, I've done it a couple of times. Has it worked? Yes, it has. Um, but cow calling has also. And, and you're exactly right. And the, the nervous bark, those shooters aren't doing that through a tube because they're at full drawn anchor. So you're just, you know, basically... Just doing something to grab that bull's attention, something that's kind of out of the out of the norm. You're right. He is going to kind of be unaware. He is going to stop and go, what was that? Um, but they tend to stop a lot quicker with that. So if I had a narrow shooting window, I would probably bark versus cow call. Um, but if I had a more liberal shooting, that cow call to keep him nice and relaxed is the way that I would go. So uh, Idaho has it right. Stay away from mechanicals. Archery elk hunting is about calling. I totally agree, Michael. If, uh, if you couldn't call them, I wouldn't hunt them. So I just love the interactions. So, and, and, and that's funny because when I'm deer hunting, I can sit on an area all day long. No problem. Elk hunting, nah, forget it. I'm going to call. I'm going to do something. So... All right, Edward, tips for calling techniques to get a bull that freezes dead in his tracks 30 to 40 yards out facing you. Happened to me three times this year, and I had good cover, and the wind was in my favor. It's likely they were extra skittish this year or something. Not necessarily. Remember, that bull is going, or that elk, is going to come to the point where he thinks he should be able to see that animal making noise, and they're going to stop. And they're going to stand like a statue, and they're just going to stare that direction where the sound came from. So, Edward, I'm assuming you were hunting solo from what it sounds like. Um, and that's the tricky thing with hunting solo is because you have to call and move and call and move. Um, and in fact, this weekend, I will get that video edited for you elkcallingacademy.com members, which is, you know, me out solo on an evening or on an evening. And you're going to see how I move, how I use the terrain, how I use the trees and, and, and everything like that to block my movements and how aggressive I actually get on this bull. And I get to within 30 yards of this bull. So um, just when he basically, when we basically met up and where we got, he was in some uh, regrowth. And so his vitals were, were pretty blocked, but you'll see on the video how I move and what I do. And, and so yeah, solo hunting 
is tough. But I think the one mistake that a lot of people make is because they're solo hunting, they're afraid to move that they just call and they think they're going to bring that elk right into their lap. And that, and that's the thing that remember that bull is going to come to that point and he's going to stop and he's going to look and he's going to use his ears and he's going to listen. And if he can't see you or hear you, then he's going to try to smell you. And that's basically why really is solo hunting. I get a lot more aggressive solo hunting than I do if there's a caller behind me. Now, Edward, if you did have a collar back behind you and that bull is stopping 30 to 40 yards out in front of you as the shooter, your collar is too close to you. You need more distance between the shooter and the collar because the purpose of the two-on-one, the shooter collar, is you're setting that shooter up in that hangout hangout spot the collar is falling far enough back that that bull is going to stop about where the shooter is and that's the whole setup so so if you're solo you need to get a little bit more aggressive on your movements so if you are in a two-on-one your collar needs to get farther back behind you so okay so hopefully that answers that one uh, to do, to do, to do, to do. BC Guide Gear, how you doing? August Robinson, thanks for tuning in, guys. So, all right, Instagram. This 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 one was was it was interesting. This this came from Joe from over at Elk Bros. We were kind of talking the other day. So, seems like I have been talking to a lot of hunters about dealing with a bad hit and the loss of an animal. It brings up questions like, should you notch your tag and call it a hunt? The unwritten responsibilities of the hunter when it comes to tracking a wounded animal. At what point do you call the search? Should I quit hunting because I feel like crap? So, okay. This one's kind of an interesting one because this is... This is ethics. This is what's inside you. This is what type of person you are. What type of character you are. So... Should you notch your tag and call it a hunt? That's one of those where, and I mean, when you get a shot on a bull, it can happen or, or a cow. I mean, just any elk, it can happen so stinking fast that, you know, you can execute that shot. In fact, prime example is one of the bulls we took this year. In his mind, it was a perfect shot. It was right behind the shoulder, a third of the way up the body from the belly. It was just perfect. It was in the pocket. It was there. It should have been there. We recovered the bull and the shot was actually back in the liver area. The reason is, is that front shoulder or that near shoulder to him was back. So with him holding that pin right behind that shoulder, shot breaks, arrow goes off. Man, I pinwheeled him. That was right behind the shoulder. You're right, it was. But that shoulder was back, which means right behind the shoulder was basically in the liver. 
So those are the things that it happens so fast. And in your mind, oh, it was a perfect shot. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. This situation has been in my lap before. So at what point do you call the search? Um, I am one that as long as I am finding blood or I know for a fact that is the track of the animal that I put an arrow in, I am going to search and search and search. Now, this is where the ethics parts come in. Um, you know, I may spend the rest of, you know, say this shot happened early in the morning and I spend all the rest of the day. Me personally, because of the respect that I have for these animals, I'm going to be back in that next in that area the very next day. I'm going to grid search. I'm not going to go out on a hunt and go pursue another animal until I know for a fact that that animal that I put an arrow in is still on his feet, that he's fine, that he's going to live. My thought process is when I release an arrow, that animal is dead. So I am going, me personally, I am going to do all that I can. Now, the thing is, is if I've looked for two days and I haven't found him, again, I'm not going to go out and hunt another elk. I'm going to go back to that area for the next few days and I'm going to sit and listen for birds. Now, mind you, I still haven't seen this animal on the hoof. I, I still haven't seen him alive. I still don't know that he's fine. So to me, he is dead somewhere. I lost blood or he did something to shake me or this or that. I'm going to go back to that spot and listen for birds. Look for predator tracks. Within a couple of days, birds will find that animal and they will lead you right to him. Now, if birds lead me to him and I find him, time's gone by, meat's no good. You bet your butt I'm patching, punching my tag. I'm taking the head, I'm taking the ivories, I'm taking anything I can off of that. But I know the meat at that point's no good. But yes, I'm punching my tag. The other part of the ethics comes and, and, and things happen. If you make the shot and you're on a blood trail that is just an insane amount of blood, and then all of a sudden it dries up, you can't find them. There's so many elk in the area, you can't focus on a single track, have been there. That's where your gut check comes into play. If you know deep down that you killed that animal, I would hope that your ethics and your character pull that knife out and pull that tag out and notch it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there that don't feel that way. There's a lot of people out there that their mindset is you can't get them if you don't fling them. And they will fling and wound a lot of animals until they finally recover one. And there's also those people that will 
hit an animal, they'll be tracking, and then all of a sudden it starts getting tough tracking, and they're like, oh, he's going to be fine. Look, he's going uphill. He's not hurt. They won't go uphill if they're not hurt. And they'll make all these excuses because all of a sudden the track job turned difficult, and it's a challenge. And those people are going to be the ones that are going to be like, yeah, he's fine. Let's just go find another one. And those are a lot of times the elk that you find the next hunting season or later in the year where there's a carcass and a skeleton and there's an arrow in there. I've I found them. I have found elk that way before. And then as soon as, as soon as, you know, I run into people, I'll take a picture of that arrow and the veins. And if I run into somebody in the hunting area and they have arrows and veins that match that, I'm going to ask them if they've had any shots. Oh yeah. You know, yeah, I got a shot on one, but yeah, I think it deflected off a branch or didn't hit him or, you know, he's, he's fine. We saw, no, he's not. He's dead. He's right over there. I strongly suggest that you go up there, you claim your animal and notch your tag. And if I see you out here hunting, I will call a game warden and I will turn you in for wasting of game. This topic in this discussion is, is, again, it's ethics. You know, are you going to do the right thing when nobody's watching? Uh, Duncan, I agree completely. I have lost one after searching for three days and punched my tag and went home without being able to locate the animal. I had an elk calling academy student last year. Shot a bull, <clears throat> tracked it, lost it, came back, and he called me. And we got on the uh, a video chat and he pulled up the area and he said, oh, you know, he showed me, okay, this is where I was, where I shot it. This is the bull. This is the way the blood trail was going. And, and it's tough because I wasn't there. And so I said, hey, I think that bull went here. He went back out, searched again and searched and searched and searched. Didn't go pursue any more bulls, searched and searched. He went back in there this summer to uh, set some trail cameras and he found his bull. The bull had actually doubled back and it ended up dying about 70 feet from where he shot it from. He notched his tag last year and now he recovered, you know, the head a year later. And I told him, hey, that was a good way to uh, save on the taxidermy bull for a European mountain. Just let the uh, critters out there do it. So uh, to do off subject, but what mounts do you use for the Euro mounts? Um, I use the skull hooker is, is what I use. So these skull caps, they, they have them for these skull caps. And then downstairs, I have the full Europeans on the skull hooker. So, um, so yeah, skull hooker. Um, there's a couple of other new ones out that I've tried. I just I, I like the way the skull hooker displays them. So, uh, Carrie, there was an elk that just came through the processor today. He had a broadhead stuck in his kneecap that was calcified and healed. Yeah, they can. They're 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 tough critters. I mean, I, I I've seen pictures where an arrow basically deflected and went along the ribs, and how it 
calcified around the broadhead. Um, you know, I've heard of broadheads being stuck in shoulder blades before. They are tough. Now, most of the time, muscle hits like that, you'll get a little bit of blood at the start and it's going to be a dark red color. So muscle and liver hits are going to be dark. And the thing with muscle hits is they will bleed instantly, but then they will immediately those white blood cells will start working and coagulate and block that up and your blood trail won't be long at all. In fact, you'll get high hopes right at the start and then all of a sudden it just starts fizzling. If it's an arterial hit, it's going to be bright red. Arterial hits, they're not going to go far at all. Arterial hits, they're usually 70 yards or less. And then lung hits, you're going to have a lot of bubbles in the lungs. Um, lungs, again, puts them down pretty darn quick. And lungs, a lot of times, you can hear them kind of coughing and hacking. And you'll find on the blood trail spots where they were, you know, coughing up the blood. So that's the other thing, too, is recognizing what type of blood that you have on your blood trail. And that's going to give you the information of how much time you need to give that elk before you start tracking. So, uh, Glenn, I spent three days looking for a whitetail and a clear cut on my hands and knees. Uh, I found out the third day someone else shot him. I hit the dead spot between spine and lungs and he wasn't mortally wounded. Yeah, they, I, I mean, it happens. So there are those voids. But your blood trail will give you a lot of information. And if you can recover your arrow, if it's a complete pass-through, recovering that arrow, you know, if you have a lot of fat on it, that's typically another sign of a muscle hit. These are all signs and indications that you need to gather all of that information. But yeah, I've been on blood trails before where we've been on our hands and knees looking for pin drops of blood and following tracks. And, you know, when when we get into those tough situations, we'll typically leave one person at the last blood. You can use marker tape and you can use other stuff like that. Uh, but since we hunt in groups of three, we'll leave that that third person. We'll leave a person at that last blood while the other two are really fanning out. And then we just kind of, you know, just keep moving forward. So there's way too many slob hunters out there giving us ethical hunters a bad name. There is. There, there really are. There are some flat out unethical, entitled a-holes running around the mountains. And it's not just with hunters too. It's people that are camping and using, you know, our public lands that are just trashing them. So anyways, I'm not going to jump up on that soapbox. So uh, I did that one time, found a deer head with an arrow. I know who the hunter was based on the arrow and fletching. I went to his house and he denied it was his arrow. Yeah. And it, and I mean, the thing that they don't understand is a lot of times, you know, there are ways to tell because there are some serial numbers or there are batches and yep, that was run. And it's a tough one to prove, but it really does kind of tell you, you know, their ethics. So 
Uh, my bull this year had a 270 bullet just under the skin in his hind end, bullet shrapnel in his shoulder, and shotgun pellets in his head. Holy cow! That dude went through a lot. So, um, I harvested an elk last year that survived a gunshot. So, uh, gentry, what else can cause bubbles in the blood? It's basically just the lung areas. It's it's because of the oxygen and it's because of that air that that's getting into the blood. So. Uh, we use sticks and branches stuck in the ground to help help mark uh, trending the direction of the blood trail travel. Yeah, there's a lot of different things you can do. And some things, you know, another thing that you guys can do is if you can take a small little spray bottle and put some hydrogen peroxide in it. <laughs> And take that spray bottle when you're on the blood trail, if you're having a hard time finding blood and you take that hydrogen peroxide and you spray it because as soon as that hydrogen peroxide hits that blood, it's going to bubble. That will help you if if need be. Um, it, it's something that I've done in the past. I don't always carry hydrogen peroxide with me. So this topic gets me worked up. I know it does. It's, 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 uh, wow. That's a very subjective debate. Accidents happen, especially with a bow. Tim, no, I, I understand accidents happen. And, 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 and I'm saying, I, I'm not saying that accidents don't happen. It, it's just, the ethics of the person or how much time do you put in it? Um, and, and that's where gathering all of that information from the arrow and the blood trail, how did the animal respond to the hit? I'm just saying, Tim, that there's a lot of people out there that as soon as the tracking gets difficult or it gets challenging, they immediately just throw up their hands and go, you know what, we've done all we could. And they stop early. They don't really put in a really strong, true effort. So, and I'm not saying that's everybody by any means. So I'm just telling you my view on it and my approach on it and how what I do in those situations. So, uh, BC guide gear. If someone is parked at a gate and you know, the area is big enough for multiple archers, would you go in or leave? See, that's a tricky one there too, because you could go into that area and, and maybe that area comes to a point where you can go either left or right. Well, you have a 50-50 chance of that other individual. I would probably leave and go someplace else, but I would try to catch that individual. Hey, you know, I, I went to the gate the other day, saw you were there. When you go in, are you going left or are you going right? And it may find out that they like to go left. Well, hey, you know, we're going to go in there and go right. So we just didn't want to interfere. We didn't know which way you went. And that's where conversations. And you may end up that they go left, you go right, you guys get a bull down. They may be there to help with pack out or vice versa. So and that's that's how neighboring camps, you know, I've, I've had that in a couple of areas, too. So um but no, if I don't know exactly which way they went, 
Um, I, I would probably just leave until I really, um, talk to them. Hydrogen peroxide works. Check for tracks, especially in wet weather that will say which way they went. Yeah. But there's sometimes, you know, tracks. So what if they get to a grassy area? Cause we've had that where, where we've been following tracks. It's been easy to, you know, identify that track and follow it. And most of the time you will get a general course of direction or a general, general sense of direction that, you know, that bull's going, but you can get into areas where it's grassy or this or that, and you just can't see tracks. And that's where you almost have to leave a person on one side, go to the other and find where that elk exited. So, uh, BC, I've been in that position and ended up calling for the other hunters rather than hunting myself out of respect for the others. Yeah, there's some things that you can do. It makes my day when someone offers to help pack out so cool of people. You can meet some really cool people. And this is one of the things where we go back to mountainside ethics. You know, how you handle this situation or how you approach that individual. If you approach on guard and, you know, what the hell are you doing in my hunting area? It creates that defensiveness. But if you approach it with, uh, you know, maybe you went and hunted someplace else and you were on your way back to camp and you catch them coming out of the gate or they're there and you stop and talk and go, hey, yeah, I was going to go in there today. I saw that your truck was here. I didn't I didn't know exactly which way you went. Didn't want to bump you. That's where a great conversation can start because they will respect what you did. And then you can basically, um, you know, go from there. So. All right, let's see. I spent two hours in the nastiest clear-cut track in the spring gobbler. Uh, doesn't mean if you didn't find your animal and someone else does that you're a soppy hunter. Um, Got to put the kids to bed. Thank you, Michael. Brad, you bet it. It's not an accident if you're a slob hunter. Uh, can blood coming out of the mouth cause it to bubble too as well? Well, if blood's coming out of the mouth, that's basically, it's it's originating from the lung area. So it's coming from the lungs, getting into the esophagus, and that's why he's calling it coughing it up. It's going to come from the mouth and the nose. And that's why I said, if you're, if, if you're tracking a bull that is lung hit, you will find parts where it's just dripping out the side, but then maybe he stops and he coughs that up and you'll just see this splatter. That's what it is. And it will have bubbles in it because he is coughing that up. So uh, agreed. You got to give 110% effort and recovery. Onyx tracking helps us recover an animal, uh, helps search areas you haven't looked as you can track your movements. Yeah, you can. You can You can basically put the tracks on. And that's what I'll do when I start doing a grid search. Um, and that's usually what I do you know, if I spent the one day following blood trail and tracks and this and that, and as soon as we start grid searching, yeah, I'll turn the tracks on the Onyx just so I can track all those and so eliminate areas uh, and be more efficient with that grid search. So I have probably packed out more of other elk than my own. Uh, Duncan, there's nothing wrong with that. So um, yeah, I packed out more elk this year that were for my hunting partners than, you know, mine. But, but you know, that's what's cool. In fact, um, God, I can't remember who it was. They were they were hunting solo. They put a bull on the ground. Or no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. They they ran into a couple of guys that were elk hunting for the first time and uh they helped pack 
that bull out. And when they got to the truck, the guy was so thankful that he actually gave them a quarter to say thanks for, you know, helping with the pack out. So there are a lot of great people out there in, you know, our sport in this and that. Um, yeah, I know we've talked about some slobs and some SOBs and they are out there, but really I, there's a larger number of great people out there. So, all right, let me do a check and make sure. Okay, we got all the Instagram questions covered, and I think we got all the Facebook questions covered. So, yes. So, all right, how are we doing for time? Ooh, we're about knocking on the door, guys. So, uh, Eric Wilson, how you doing, bud? So, Northern Trapper, what's the best way to get a bull to answer or come in towards the end of breeding season? So, um, you know, really, that's that's the thing. Get him to answer or get him to come in towards you. You just have to work that bull and pay attention to how he's responding. And, and Northern Trapper, so when you say to get an answer, so we all focus on just that high pitch of the normal bugle, but there's so many different ways that they can answer. They can give, you know, low tone huffs and grunts or they can rake. Those are all answers. And actually them coming towards you silently is an answer. So we basically need to, you know, you need to really retune your ears. And I know I've had a couple of conversations with people this year that have really paid attention to those low audible tones. And they're like, wow, we heard more low audible tones this year in responses that years past, we would have never, ever given a second thought to that. So... Uh, good session this evening. Thank you. So Kelly Ford, when is the bow raffle? All right. Countdown timer has started, but let's talk about this. So yes, season is done. My intent is to get the raffle all set up this week and announce it next week week during the live Q&A. For those of you that don't know, uh, the Matthews Traverse that I am shooting this year, I am raffling that bow off. It is $20 per ticket. Only 100 tickets will be sold. So you have a one in 100 chance of winning this Matthews Traverse. I was going to do it fully set up, but I noticed the quiver has a small crack in it. So I'm going to take this the quiver off and I am going to take the side off. Other than that, it's going to be a fully set up Matthews Traverse with the integrated rest. And we will announce that raffle next week. And I will give you the information on where you can get raffle tickets for. So uh, draw length, it's set at 29 inches. This is 70 pounds, but you can take it into your local dealer and get different mods to change that draw length. So... All right, guys, I got 30 seconds left to go. Thank you for all of you tuning in tonight. Thank you for the interaction. I am truly humbled with all of you, and I thank all of you for the support. As always, keep calling, keep practicing. Most importantly, though, have fun. And we will see you guys next week on the next episode of Wapiti Wednesday Q&A brought to you by Elk Calling Academy. Have a great night, everybody. Follow and subscribe to Elk Calling Academy on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Patreon for tips, tactics, gear reviews, and live Q&A, helping you to success faster.
Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down. Hey, everyone. This is Andrew with Sasquatch Fuel. If you're heading into the backcountry this season and you need some meals that don't bog you down, check out sasquatchfuel.com. Our 100% compostable packaging was designed to combat litter in the backcountry. For more information on conservation in action, head to sasquatchfuel.com. Hey guys, enter code Western Contours at checkout and save a few bucks off your order.